Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Laura. So, Laura, can you tell me when and where you were born and if you can describe what it was like where you grew up, the sort of schools you went to and the education that you received? Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you're bringing me right back to the start here. Um, oh, born yes. in Born in 84 um, in a suburb outside of Toronto, Um, stay-at-home mom, uh, dad who worked uh, his way up through the the ranks at the Bank of Montreal, which is one of Canada's largest largest banks, and uh, had a brother who teased and abused me, an older brother, and he kind (laughs) of kicked my butt a lot, and I think taught me a lot about resiliency, but quite honestly, a very ordinary upbringing if you can imagine i mean your 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 tagline here is ordinary people doing extraordinary or with extraordinary stories and uh yeah pretty pretty ordinary in terms of my upbringing um in terms of school uh obviously was just going to a public school in the surrounding area what i thought was kind of unique about my schooling was the fact that it really was a mix of people who went there so you had people from all walks of life a lot of uh, immigrant people moved to Brampton, which was the area area I grew up in, and I got to meet and befriend a lot of people from different cultures. Some some of these people hardly spoke any English, and I actually was in a class where I helped those individuals kind of learn English as a second language and help them with some of their skills, and that kind of gave me a lot more empathy toward um, some of those minorities. Um, but what was kind of interesting was that uh, my parents put me early on into a, a um, into ski racing, and in in doing that, I kind of yeah, I kind of got to interact with a lot of people whose parents did come from quite a bit of money, and so I had this kind of dichotomy where, uh, you know, in one respect, I felt very very uh, privileged and lucky, and then. On weekends, you know, I felt very not so privileged and not as lucky as, as some of those counterparts. <laughs> so that that really kind of gave me a sense of, of, you know, the way the world works and how there's, you know, both of these things uh, interacting with each other at the same time. And, and I think that's really helped me uh, in my in my journey, I guess you could say. Ah, so when did you start your ski career? Well, my ski career, I don't know if you'd call it much of a career, Tim, but um, mm. I started skiing when I was four years old, which is pretty much my parents just kind of plopped me on some skis and pushed me down the hill and kind of saw what would, what would happen. Um, obviously, for the first couple of years, you're, you're really learning the, the fundamentals of skiing versus racing. But that would, is what I would say was was really the the basis of my competitive journey. I was not a very good skier. Born in December, so I was always the small little kid, smaller than all of my peers, particularly people who were born in January, who were almost a year older than me, and they were a lot bigger than I was. And uh, with a sport like skiing, gravity. Um, 
plays a, a very big factor, and I certainly didn't have that on my side. I'm also just a, a small person. Like, I'm five feet. I'm not even five foot one now. So you can imagine as a, a tiny little kid that, you know, I didn't have a lot going for me from a ski perspective. I actually wanted to do gymnastics. I was totally built from gymnastics. But my parents, even though all the coaches said, oh, yeah, she, she would be great. She should go competitive. Um, my parents decided that they didn't want to spend their their weekends at, uh, you know, a warehouse facility watching me do gymnastics. They really wanted to us to be in a family sport and a sport that could kind of take us on into our older, older age and do it, you know, well into our seventies and, and eighties at times. Yeah. So they, they, they went down that route, but it was kind of unfortunate for me because I just wasn't really good at it. But again, in, in just persisting and persevering and me being a lover of competition, I actually ended up turning out, as a pretty good ski racer. And then I, I followed to um, being a ski coach after that for six or seven mm. years. So let's just take it back a little bit. The area that you grew up in, what was that like? Was it like a leafy suburb or were you in high rise tower blocks or what, yeah, what was the, the actual area like? I, mean, I grew up in definitely, you know, suburban lifestyle, detached homes. Um, not, not a particularly luxurious uh, area. There is definitely um, some areas of, of the suburbs that were a little more dangerous. And I'm sure my parents didn't really want me venturing over into those areas. <laughs> but in, in all honesty, it was very middle class. Um you know, people had one car, they had one home and their parents worked. Uh, maybe you'd have family with a, a stay at home mom uh, if she had the luxury not to work, which my family, we did. But yeah, everyone was just kind of hardworking, middle class folk. Um, and, and as I said, it was um, very interesting because although I loved my upbringing, it definitely opened my eyes to saying, well, if I want more, and I want to do something else and I want to get out of living here. Not that it was a bad place, but I definitely had my, my sight set on more, you know, that I would have to do something different. So I wouldn't be able to do what all the people around me were doing. I would have to think differently, think outside the box and surround myself with people who were just as ambitious um, or who had maybe more experience doing other things and kind of latch onto those people and, and learn as much as I could from them. Mm-hmm. So what was your kindergarten like? <laughs> kindergarten. Oh, Tim, Tim. Um, my mom tells me, tells a very funny story. Uh, again, going back to just how small I was, my mom almost held me back a year. So I was premature a little bit. So I should have been born in January, but I ended up being born in December. And uh, she wanted to hold me back from going to kindergarten because she, she just thought I was so tiny and that I would just get crushed. But as I had mentioned, my brother did a lot of beating me up um, in my early years as it was. And so I, I guess I was appropriately prepared. So my mom shows up with me day one. And uh, the teacher asked us all to get in a lineup. And my mom's there talking to the teacher saying, like, I really think you need to watch out for my daughter. You know, she's so, so tiny. And, you know, I, I, you know, I'm thinking maybe of holding her back, but I just wanted to see how day one went. So we all get in this lineup. And I'm told the story. I don't really remember this myself, but um, someone had butt in front of me. And he was a much larger kid. And apparently I had none of that. So I tapped him on the back and I told him to get to the back of the line very <laughs> aggressively 
uh, as the story goes. And the teacher whispers to my mom, I think she's going to be just fine. Um, so I was a bit of a feisty, a feisty little one, um, super, super competitive. I wanted to excel at everything right from kindergarten, like grades mattered to me, uh, winning competitions mattered to me, showing up to school on time and having teachers praise me in the comments of my report card. Like I wanted to be successful across the board and that stemmed from a very, very early age, which is great in theory, but I also came with a lot of stress, perhaps un unnecessary stress on a, on a child to try to think that they could actually be good at everything, mm. which I've now learned uh, to accept that I'm clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you think caused you to think that way in the first place? Was it, was it the way that you were brought up? Was it something that you, your dad did or you... What gave you that drive to be good at everything? I think your my my upbringing, my dad definitely he was huge into sports, and so a lot of times when my mom was you know cleaning or doing something, and she wanted my dad to kind of step in and take care of us, he always played sports with us. So it was basketball, baseball. Uh, we had a pool. When I, when I was in grade three and, and just swimming and all these things. And he never treated me, I'm going to say, like a girl. You know, he never treated me delicately. He would let my brother beat me up and say, you, you know, Laura, you're going to have to stick up for yourself. You know, and he did his little ways to try to help me because I didn't ha I didn't stand a chance. But between my dad and my brother, my brother, like, honestly, I can't say it enough. The poor guy now would probably feel bad about it. But um he really did take on me a lot. And, like, I remember us getting – my brother got uh, not boxing gloves, but uh, hockey gloves uh, for Christmas one year. And he would give me uh, one glove, and he would take one glove, and we would go upstairs, and he'd say, okay, we're going to box now. And uh, he, he would go ding, 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 and we would set the timer, and I would come out, and he said, Laura, it's really important as a boxer. you got to cover your face. But I didn't think to put my hands up, and so I put my head down. And, uh, of course, then my brother would, you know – navigate around me and, and clear away all my punches. And then I'd lift my head up and he would sucker punch me right in the face. And, you know, I'd fall <laughs> to the floor and I'd start wailing and crying. And he would, he would be on top of me saying, shh, shh, shh. he's like, you, you got to be a good sport. You don't want to, you know, mom and dad to get mad at us and not let us play anymore. <laughs> and so just really, really early on, <laughs> I learned to be just tough, like just to suck it up, get back up. Um, and, and more importantly, I think I learned that it doesn't matter if you're a girl, it doesn't matter if you're small, it doesn't matter whatever your, um, thing that you kind of look at yourself as being a disadvantage. It's actually in some ways an advantage because no one sees you coming. I, I don't think that big kid who got in front of me thought I was going to be an issue until I was. And so sometimes, um, being overlooked and disregarded is actually a great thing. Cause like I said, no one, no one sees you coming and that's when you come back at them full, full tilt, but you do need that spirit. You know what I mean? You need that competitive yeah. spirit, that drive to want to prove people wrong about you. So moving on slightly then, what about, uh, what's the next one? Is it elementary school? Yeah, elementary school for me was, uh, was, you know, I just picture a lot of stress, stress 
<laughs> I mean, you're probably thinking like, how is someone so young, so stressful, but uh, yeah, so stressed out. But I, I really, really compared myself to all of my peers. So if I, if someone in my class was doing well at something, say math, I wanted to be doing well at math. If someone over here was a good drawer, I wanted to be a good drawer. It didn't matter if I necessarily had a, a, a natural skill set. I was just willing to put in the extra effort to try to compete with everybody on everything. Um, what I didn't learn at that time was to necessarily focus in on my strengths. I don't even think I knew what my strengths were. I think what I knew is that I was willing to do a lot of the work. And a lot of people would kind of brag and say, oh, well, this comes naturally to me. I didn't even need to study for this test. And in my mind, I always thought, yeah, but like if you didn't need to work at it, imagine what you could have done if you did work at it, where I, I would put the work in and we would get mm -hmm. the same grade, for example. Um, so it really, it, it did not matter to me if it was track and field, high jump, which again, I had no business doing high jump, running long distance, running short distance. I, I like, I just was kind of that kid that was, I was never a superstar at anything, but I really did find that just simply because I put so much work and effort in that I was good at a lot of things, which opened up a lot of doors. But at the same time, I think now in my thirties, I'm still like, well, what is the thing that I'm good at? You know, what is my strength? Where some kids I think learn it a lot earlier on uh, than I did. <laughs> So, what was your favourite um, class in elementary? I, oh, my favourite class was by far gym gym class. Um, I love gymnastics, and I went to school where. Um, gymnastics was a big part of like the teacher really pushed it our, our gym teacher and uh that to me was just so much fun i love doing flips and tricks and jumps and uh practicing at home i mean i, I would get home and just practice 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 backhands ring after backhands ring after backhands ring and forcing my parents to watch me my poor parents god bless them because they actually <laughs> would sit there and be like yay and what's also funny about me is that i would purposefully time like let's say I was swimming um at home I would time myself as you know swimmer number one and then I would time myself again as swimmer number two and then the third swimmer was the real me and I would time myself as the third me to see if I could beat all my other previous scores so I mean I, I was just competitive through and through and I think gym was a really great outlet for me for that mm. what was your worst subject then my worst subject. Um, what one did you really like, not like doing? School or can we can we go into more middle school? <laughs> well, we're going to work into middle school. Okay, all right, all right. Elementary school, probably reading. Like that wasn't really a subject necessarily, but that was definitely a skill I was not very good at. Um, I was very stressed to read. I, I felt like because we got tested sometimes on the nuances of, of a book, like what was the color of the t-shirt Timmy was wearing? And I could never remember those details. I found reading and the fun and joy of reading was really taken away for me. As a young, young kid, I always loved reading to my mom and I would sit there and I would have her and I would pretend to be the teacher and, you know, and show, show my mom the, the illustrations while I read. But then once we started getting tested on it, it just um, made me so fearful that I was going to forget something. And so I would read each sentence with so much vigor and intensity that A, I couldn't get through the book on time and B, it just, I couldn't get the music of it. You know, I couldn't get the overall premises of what was going on because I was too focused on the details. So I wasn't a very good reader. Mm. 
So were you skiing at this stage as well? I was skiing, yeah. I was definitely skiing, and I wasn't good at skiing. I wasn't very good at skiing. Like, I was decent, we'll say. Remember I said I wasn't really a superstar at much? Yeah. Skiing definitely was not was not a superstar at that age. <laughs> <laughs> so have you carried on skiing throughout your life then, or is it? Yes, I still... No, I ski to this day uh, at the same ski club, actually, that my parents had joined when I was a kid. My brother's there. Um, I met my husband through that ski club. And so that ski club has really become a, a very integral part of my life. Later on in high school, um, I really, really took to ski racing. I love the competitiveness. I love the it not being a team sport, quite honestly. I think I, I was good at. I didn't have to rely on anybody else but myself. Um, and I had an amazing, amazing coach at that time who really kind of took me under his wing. I think he saw potential, and perhaps no one else up to that point had really taken the time. I think they all kind of thought, well, she's not going to amount to much of a racer, so we'll just like let her be here but not do much. And he really um, focused his efforts on me, and sometimes that's all you need is someone to kind of believe in you. And uh, in, in one short year, just having a great coach completely turned around my my ski racing. I was actually about to quit ski racing until he came along. And then I ended up being one of the, the better ski racers on the circuit. After that, I had enjoyed it so much that I became a ski coach. And as I mentioned, I, I, I ski coached for six or seven years where I was actually teaching kids how to race, which was a lot of fun. And now I really just ski for fun, which is, mm. you know, sometimes I miss the competition because skiing for fun uh, <laughs> isn't, isn't all that fun when it's really, really cold out. But um, yeah, it, it, it definitely it will be a big part of my life. Is it not the same as, um, as two boats going in the same direction? It is. It exactly. So, two people skiing down a hill at the same time becomes a race. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I do it just for fun with my husband. Like, let's let's race down here. But uh, he's unfortunately <laughs> a little bit better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you ever tried telemark skiing? I have not, actually. And I see people at my ski club um, do that downhill. It looks very, very difficult. And it looks like I need bigger um, thigh muscles <laughs> to do it because it looks very, very exhausting. I've done cross-country skiing, which is a lot of fun, and that's an incredible workout. But yeah. I like speed. Like, I like going fast. I like almost to the point, like, I've been on mountains and things where, like, you're going so fast that you think, if I were to fall right now, I actually might die. I like, there's something about that that really intrigues me. Um and, and you probably wouldn't know because I'm wearing this girly little dress here, but I really, really have a uh, a need for speed and excitement. Well, let me give you a little bit of a tip about telemarking. Telemarking is phenomenal to watch racing. Um, I've been a telemark racer for, for a lot of years. I'm kind of retired now, but um, you can go as quick as an average alpine skier. The fun part about the racing is that you're skiing the same slopes as a as a alpine. Yeah. The difference is if you've got the gates are set slightly different, and you have to go through them in a telemark stance. But you've got the added thing of a you have to go over a jump. You have to go around a 360 degree wrap. And then you've got a skate section to finish off with that generally ends up going uphill. I, 
you know, I have never seen a race for telemarketing. So just a different technique. Yeah, That's well, good, good for you. See, and see, skiing can take you, take you, you know, decades. It's not one of those sports like gy- something like gymnastics that I was doing and spending so much time on that I would have had to retire at eighteen anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. So anyway, next time you get a little bit of snow, um, have, have a go at telemarking. It's just yeah. a different turning technique. I know. I, I, I think it looks beautiful. Bonus. The bully bonus with telemarking is the boots are so much more comfortable than alpine boots. You got that. And, you got that. And you can walk around and you look normal. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. Boots, you're clumping about. Like it's a pretty nerdy looking sport when you're all like in the uh, in the chalet afterwards, clunking around in your big heavy boots and your feet have frostbite, permanent frostbite that never seems to go away. I mean, I've, yeah, it, it uh, teaches you a lot about resiliency, those boots. Mm. <laughs> and overcoming discomfort. You don't get that with a telemark boots. Anyway, let's uh, we, we've we strayed slightly off there. Let's uh, let's take you back to um, is it junior high or high school? Yeah, yeah, um, high school. Oh man, um, high school started off great <laughs> for me. In all honesty, um, pretty excited. My brother was older than me, so he was already in high school before me. And I, there's something about having that older sibling presence when you go to a new school that's obviously quite exciting I focused a lot of my efforts early on in in um, classes like drama um, to the point where I actually decided and asked my parents if they could enroll me in in uh, acting classes outside of school and my poor parents I mean I can't even believe they did they would do this so I would meet I would meet at the mall I would walk to the mall after my class meet my mom there because my mom doesn't doesn't drive so she she had no way of getting around and my mom would meet me at the mall we would get on a bus we would bus into the city and and uh, that would take about 45 minutes and then we would get off uh, at the subway station get on the subway transfer and then meet at my acting classes my dad then after work would come and meet with my mom at, at acting class and then drive me home I mean I can't even imagine like when I leave work the idea of even like going to the grocery store to pick up something is like a hassle you know <laughs> let alone uh, having to do all this that my parents are doing um, but I really, yeah, I really enjoyed performing and uh, being center stage. I loved all that. I loved the creativity around it. Um, the unfortunate thing that I think happened in high school for me was an, a, a, a conversation with a guidance counselor that didn't go perhaps as it should have. Um, mm-hmm. Talking with my guidance counselor, I, you know, I asked the questions of, you know, I, I want to be successful. That like she would say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, successful. Like I'm, I'm an ambitious person. I think it's safe to say from what I've told you, you can kind of see that my whole life. I wanted to be successful, whatever that meant. And she had told me, well, in order to be successful, then like you got to get into science. Science is going to be the way that you be successful. Either, you know, you're going to be a doctor or work at a hospital or be a scientist or something of that nature. And 
And silly me at the ripe age of 16 was like, okay, I guess that's what I need to do. So I started taking summer school classes because I didn't have the prerequisites um, to take some of the higher up science classes. And I, so I went to summer school, took biology, took chemistry, um, took all the mathematic classes that I needed to do in order to get into university. Um, and they were all in science, and I kind of dropped the, the courses that I really did like. I also had the added bonus here in the province of Ontario and Canada. Um, we had up to grade 13, and the government decided that we were only going to go up to grade 12. I happened to be the last year that would have grade 13, which meant the grade 12 students and the grade 13 students would all graduate at the same time. So we had a double cohort year, which meant that applications into university were double, the schools did didn't grow in size substantially and so it was very 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 competitive and those last couple years in high school were extremely stressful to me because a I wasn't naturally good at science and b I didn't really like it with the exception of the fact that I thought by taking science I was doing something that was really hard that a lot of people couldn't or wouldn't do that was really my only driving force to do it I luckily did get into university for the, the, the degree that I wanted to, which was nutrition. Um, but now I sit as a real estate agent and uh, an owner of a media company, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, and I have nothing to do with science. So I, I kind of learned that the hard way. Um, and, you know, I think guidance counselors try their best, but I don't, I don't think this one uh, <laughs> hit, hit the mark with, with uh, her feedback toward me. <clears throat> So what did you do when you left high school? Because so you clearly graduated with some sort of honours. Yes, yeah, I was. I worked my butt off, in all honesty. I, in fact, I had to take calculus twice because my grade wasn't good enough the first time, and so I knew I had to do it over again uh, just to get the right marks in order to apply to university. I got into my number one choice, so I was very happy. Of course, at that time, I thought, you know, I had made it. That was going to be the key to, to my life. But uh, I went to school the next year um, to university for a four-year degree, uh, four degree, and um, it was pretty early on into my first year, I think when I started to get that sense of doubt, like, I don't know if I should be here. Why is this so hard for me? I, I, I was, I think I spent so much of my life always putting myself in difficult situations and not necessarily leaning into my strengths, That that kind of seemed natural to me. But, you know, when I realized they had put me in a bioscience cluster, so when, like where we lived on campus, so all the students around you would be taking kind of the same courses and you could kind of study together and things like that. But I started to realize I had hardly anything in common with the people I was living with. They're all great people, of course, but um, we you know, at, at our fundamental level, I, we, we just weren't similar. We didn't find the same things funny. We didn't like to party the same. They like to spend a lot more time um, in their rooms by themselves where I wanted to go out and socialize. And I think that was kind of the, I don't know if I'm in the right place. But at that time, you think, well, I've already put one year into this. What's three more years? Let me, I didn't want to start over again. So let me just finish the degree. So sadly, I, I went through the whole program. Um, painful, painful to, to keep in something for four years when you really kind of like know it's not right for you, but just simply because you don't, you don't want to start over and you don't want to get left behind. Um, of course, once I was finished the program, I then had to start over because I realized I wasn't going to get a, a, a job um, in that industry. So 
I did end up starting over. <laughs> so if I had to give myself any advice, it would be to, you know, take your loss a little bit earlier and to understand that at, at 18 years old, one year really uh, isn't that big a deal. But of course, when you're 18, that seems like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. I guess taking you to 22 or 23. Yeah. Oh, and, and you clearly wasted that time. <laughs> yes, I did. Last I did. Tim, so I, when I graduated university, I have a very specialized degree. It wasn't even the type of degree where you could take a minor in anything. So, it, you know, dabbled my mm. toe in, in all these other fields. It, like there was so many courses within the program. I think I had only a handful of electives, so I couldn't minor in anything. I have a very now specialized degree in, in human nutrition. And ideally you get an internship at a hospital when you take that degree. But again, we had the double cohort. So there was a lot more kids graduating. The hospitals didn't get more funding. So just the ability to get an internship at a hospital was next to impossible. You needed straight nineties or above to, to even be considered in, in some of the provinces that like I've never even been to. Like I'm talking about like, I'm going to live in the middle of nowhere to do this internship at some hospital. Um, so I just, I just gave it up. I said, it's not going to happen for me. And I was really starting from scratch. I took a job at a luxury concierge service company um, in, in Toronto. And I was the admin person. I said, I'm starting at the bottom. Like, here's going to be my career trajectory. And I thought, well, there's design, there's travel, um, you know, it's luxury clientele. That all seemed very neat and interesting to me. So I, I did that for, for only a year. That was a very small business. Business. And I, at the time, had never worked for a small company before. All my experience has been working for the government or working for the Bank of Montreal, so big corporations. And I didn't, at the time, appreciate the um, haphazardness of it all. And I didn't appreciate that, you know, we were learning along with the owner. Um, I, I was just so used to people telling me exactly what to do versus me trying to figure it out on my own. And so I left that, went back to school just to do a re what's called a retail buying certificate. Uh, and that allows you to work at like a department store head office. So for example, Holt Renfrew is one of Canada's uh, largest luxury department stores. And so the idea was going to be that I was going to work, work there as a, as a buyer and work my way up the ranks. And who knows, I had, I had ideas of I'm going to be the CEO of Holt Renfrew one day. And you know, all these ideas. Again, I, I was a big dreamer, right? So I went back to school to do that. And I got a, an amazing internship at Holt Renfrew that, I mean, all girls my age at 23 tw or 24 years old would have died for. Um, it, it was such an incredible opportunity until the point when, when uh, it was 2008 or nine at this point. And I mean, the world had kind of crashed, right? Yeah. And uh, the company had mandated that they were not going to bring anyone on full-time for the next year. So my internship was up and I was supposed to get a job after that. And, but there was a hiring freeze and they had told me they, they couldn't hire me. Um, so now here I am at 24 years old, feeling like I'm starting all over again for, for the second time. Mm. Um, so at that point I decided, okay, what, what am I going to do? Like I need doors to open. Um, and, and you know, you're looking at your friends at that time and they're already getting promoted. Right. And I can't even get a job. And cause they've been, they've been since 22 working in the field that they actually went to school from. And I, I keep seemingly starting again. So I decided to take on a, a nanny position, um, for a, a family who had a special needs daughter. I would help them during the day. And then in the evenings, I decided I would go back to school and do 
my MBA because I still had bills to pay. So I couldn't do my MBA full time. Um, so I did my MBA at night and I just, just really with the idea of like, this is just going to open doors. Education has got to open doors uh, versus closing them. And I, I decided to get back into that creativity of, of marketing, advertising, branding. So I took a lot of courses in and around that. And, uh, that's that kind of, I guess, brings, should I keep going? <laughs> I told you this was going to be a long part if you ask me about my career. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting a picture here that <laughs> you've never actually sort of stuck to anything properly, but you've been trying to excel at everything and failed at most things. So, well, not quite failed, but... Um, yeah. Certainly didn't uh, certainly didn't achieve what, what I had hoped for, definitely. Yeah. So, you got into the um, the branding type of business. Yeah, yeah. So in my in my um, degree, I was taking like as I said, a number of branding and marketing classes. Um, although at that time, my husband kind of planted the seed that he thought I would be a good real estate agent. And, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. he's a real estate agent. So <laughs> I should have taken that with a little more of a grain of salt. But um, I, I then, during my MBA, I also was taking courses on the side to get my real estate license. And I kind of thought, I can see how this is all going to mesh together. My luxury experience at Holt Renfrew and in the concierge service is going to help me speak to luxury uh, sellers so I can sell high-end listings. Um and I thought, you know, my nutrition degree, well, that's just always great to be healthy and, and to have something else to talk about besides real estate. So I was doing my, my MBA on, uh, sorry, my real estate license on the side. And I thought all my, everything I was learning in my MBA of running my own business, marketing, branding, finance, accounting, that was all going to set me up to be a very successful real estate agent. So at 30 years old, I am now a real estate agent. And I'm starting all over again because the degree took me uh, a couple years to get going. And um, I was doing that for about two years solidly by myself when I thought, you know what, I'm missing that team component. I was wor- It's hard to work by yourself. It's hard to stay motivated. All of a sudden, you know, you start sleeping in a little way later and wearing your pajamas a little longer and uh, <laughs> taking a nap maybe in the afternoon when you shouldn't be. And so I said, I, I got to surround myself with people who want to achieve some things so we can do this all together as a team. And that's when I went and my, met my now business partner. Um, he was running a team of, of, I think it was 23 agents at the time. They were top 10 in the country. And I said, I'm going to sit myself right beside you and I'm going to figure out ways that I can help because I knew it wasn't going to be sales. I, I was not a natural salesperson, but I knew I had all these other experiences to draw on. So whether it was let me help you make a spreadsheet. Let me help you make a system. Have you done a P&L statement? Um, have you looked at your marketing in a while? Like, who's your target market? Does the branding make sense? Um, are we using social media? Like, things like that. And uh, and I really just put my hand up to, to work for free just to get in the room so I could be privy to amazing real estate conversations. Uh, in doing that, I honestly think I made myself indispensable, although no one really is, but, um, at least I tried, I tried my absolute best and, uh, I, I quickly, I think showed my value to the team. And, and, uh, a year after that became the VP of that team. That team now sits at, we're, we're flirting between first and third in the country in terms of sales. And we have now 50, we've grown to 54 agents on the team. So I'm very proud of, of seeing how that's actually 
gone and, and my contribution toward that. And so I finally think I found the thing that I could be relatively successful at. <laughs> so you found your niche then? I think so. My niche is not, not in sales. Everyone always says, well, you're a real estate agent. Tell me about sales. That was not my niche. My niche really was um, helping to build systems, helping to scale, helping, um, you know, real estate usually isn't a scalable business. And we've kind of figured out a way to do that using branding really as top of the funnel um, um, awareness. And that is kind of what spurred on about a year ago. We were asked by a number of real estate agents around the office and in the industry who were saying, well, you guys are one of the top teams and you're doing a lot of content online. You're doing podcasts and social media and blogs and all these things. You guys seem to have it figured out. Like, how did you do it? We would explain to them exactly how we did it. We would give them the, the whole blueprint. Our, macro thesis was that, you know, there's more than enough pie to go around. The pie is big enough. Um, so just give everybody the information and also knowing that most people like they, they're information gatherers, but they're, they don't know how to execute or they choose not to for whatever reasons. And so we would check in with some of those agents after we'd have our chat and I'd say, how's the blog going or how's the podcast going? And they didn't get started. And that kind of, you know, when you hear that again and again and again, you realize Maybe there's an opportunity here. People are really struggling with the idea of content creation and, and getting started. And maybe we can somehow help. So 13 months ago, um, the guy who owned the, who you actually had on your show, Jazz Plakar, he, yeah. he and I started our, our own business called From the Ground Up Media, where we help real estate agents and mortgage brokers produce content so that they can better connect with their audience and really educate their, their community to make more informed decisions. Uh -huh. So tell me about the media company then. Yeah, the media company. How, how have you got it set up? Yes. I know it was a long story, but we're here now, Tim. So <laughs> I appreciate you you coming along for the journey. Um, yeah, the, like I said, it, it, the media company was kind of already there in that we had hired a bunch of people in the media space, so graphic designer, content writer, uh, videographers, editors, to help us with our own content. And people had asked us if they could essentially hire our guys because they didn't want to go out and, and find um, their own media squad. And, and that's really what happened. We said, okay, let's, instead of having the team do content for us, we're going to have the team do content for other people. Um, and it just started with one, one question to one agent in our office, which was, hey, we're thinking about starting a, a company where we're going to help people produce content and we think you'd be a great candidate for it. Um, and, and this person just happened to trust us. I mean, my goodness, she, she had no real reason to trust us with the exception of the fact that we were doing it for ourselves. But mm. she, she did, she believed in what we were doing. She's still a client to this day. And so, you know, I think we're doing something right in that regard, but we've hit our head against the wall so many times, Tim, I, I can't even tell you. I thought because of the success of the real estate company, it would be kind of easy to just parallel that with a media company. What I didn't anticipate was the amount of emotion involved when we're talking about people's personal brands. So we don't necessarily help corporations, although we have dabbled in that, but it's mostly people's personal brands. So them speaking to their audience, top of the funnel, connect and engaging with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but through social media instead of actually one-on-one -on -one, um, is very scary for a lot of people. And it, it was scary for me too, but I don't think I knew to the extent that that would resonate. Like, I mean, I knew I had my own insecurities. I didn't know to the, to the level that 
all adults and humans have their insecurities. <laughs> I think I thought I was the only one, you know, and it was, oh God, like, I don't like how I look. I don't like how I sound. I'm not sure if anyone's going to care what I have to say. I thought those were all unique to me. And I've realized it really does transcend to all people, no matter how beautiful, no matter how intelligent, no matter how successful, everyone struggles with that. And there's something about putting a camera on. And Tim, maybe you've had this too when you first started your your show, um, that it, it changes you. It, it makes you think you you got to look a certain way or sound a certain way. And all of a sudden, when you say ums and ahs in regular conversation, you feel like you got to stop and restart the script just simply because the camera's on or if the audio quality doesn't come out perfectly or if you're you you have a pimple on your face that day for whatever it is there's so many excuses and people can't seem to get past it and i didn't anticipate um I didn't anticipate how many uh, barriers people have put on and and how much shielding people have put on since they're kids just to protect themselves. And so now we got to kind of like take off all those layers one at a time. And it can be quite emotional for a lot of people. It is is quite amusing the, the amount of people that don't like the sound of their own voice. They don't like the way they look on camera. They feel so self-conscious. And it takes a lot of time to 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 knock that out of somebody. Um, I mean, for me, I mean, it, it took me quite a bit of time to get used to my own voice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now I'm fine with it. I am... I'll do this. I could say for a living, but... Um, well, if you don't mind me telling a kind of a funny story about people not liking their own voice. I mean, I um, in university, I had such a raspy voice. Like, it really was almost debilitating. I, I think it's probably from too much partying and, you know, trying to sing <laughs> and yell over loudspeakers at bars and pubs and things like that. But um, I really hardly had a voice, and I could, I could barely speak at, at times. So I went to the doctor, and they did a, a scope of my, my vocal cords, and they had told me that. I had a, a lot of calluses on my vocal cords, and the calluses mean that when you speak, the the sound is ricocheting off the calluses, and it comes out very distorted. Um, and, and they said, they asked me if I was a singer, and it, they said we see this in people who are singers, people who are in like choirs and things like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have the worst singing voice. Like no one would ever listen to me singing. <laughs> and so they had they had told me they said you you never learn to speak. Pr- properly you speak from here so supposed to speak from your diaphragm and you're going to need to either have surgery to remove the calluses or you're going to need to to go to therapy to to relearn how to speak i of course did neither and i just kind of let it fester but over years you know a little less partying at my old age um you know my voice has come back a little bit but it's still very raspy you know no one has ever said to me wow laura you have such a beautiful voice i, I always say i have the you know how people say you have a face for radio i say i have a voice for blog because no one wants to hear this voice but you know what screw it i talk anyways and i think you have to just get to that point where you realize if you're in sales like if i'm speaking to to real estate sales people or just sales people in general the person that you're trying to to hide from 
is going to eventually meet you. So if you're putting a, a picture on your business card that's from 13 years ago because you that was the last time you thought you looked good, or you're you know you're changing your lighting and you're always wearing makeup on all these things and you only do it when your voice sounds perfect. I mean, someone's going to meet you in person. They're going to see that you you clearly have airbrushed your photos. They're going to see that you clearly don't look the way that you present yourself online. And already now you're setting yourself up that they shouldn't trust you because you're lying to them uh, in yeah. how you showcase yourself. And I would rather just put the shit out there, <laughs> excuse my, my French, uh, <laughs> right off the bat, because now it's like, well, now what do you have? You know what I mean? Like I went through that moment where I got the, the hair, my hair done and my eyelashes done. I had all that. As soon as I thought I'd be on camera and I made sure I had my makeup done, but quite honestly, Tim, I don't have time for that. I'm trying to run a business here. I'm trying to be a successful businesswoman. I don't have time to spend two hours in the morning to make my, myself look a certain way. I have to just accept it. And if you truly, truly want to be successful at some point, you have to stop fighting with yourself and just really accept yourself for who you are. And when you get there, and I'm not saying I'm fully there, but when you start to see it and you get a little bit more comfortable with it, I mean, that's where the beauty is. I, I've helped some people who who really could, could, who would cringe watching themselves. They could not watch themselves and their face would get all red and they would quit and, and then blame us for everything that was wrong in their lives. And, and it was like, they just were so insecure that they would, they started pointing fingers, you know what I mean? But now I've seen them kind of blossom and get that confidence. And it's so, so wonderful to see because as adults, we hide it. We, we hide all our insecurities because we were told to, and we don't know how to navigate and get through it any other way. But I, I truly think if you can get to the place where you're putting yourself on camera and you're watching yourself and you're critically analyzing yourself, not with the idea of beating yourself up for, for anything, but just getting the feedback from people, it's so freeing. There's something that I, I feel more free now than I ever have. And I think content's actually forced me to do it. It pushes you outside your comfort zone and it's awful when you're in it. But when you get to the other side, it's, uh, it's pretty magical in a way. Yes. I mean, it takes me all of, I don't know, a couple of seconds just to put my glasses on and put me out on straight and, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> and I think you look great. <laughs> Thanks for that. I think you're pretty good looking yourself. Well, thank you. See? And we don't need to do too much yeah. work around it. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all human. So, we're all just pretty average so time to get over it and then keep keep it moving we're all ordinary that's got extraordinary so laura where do you see yourself going in the next five years <laughs> Well, Tim, I think from my story, it's probably safe to say that I don't really think of my life in five-year periods anymore. I have yet to really, really stick to any one thing for five years. And so I feel like it would almost be naive of me to say this is where I see myself. I, I'm in love with um, what I'm doing on the media side. I love the human elements. I love helping people with their businesses. Um, I love helping people who are who don't feel they have a voice whether it be their their women their minorities or men that, like whatever if they feel they don't have a voice and I help and I love helping to provide that for them I would love my business to to be something that's sustainable that you know I I picture doing this for 
many, many, many years. And I picture it being bigger and better and, and hopefully uh, a global brand. As I said to you before, I'm, I'm a dreamer. And so I'm going to keep mm-hmm. dreaming. I'm going to keep dreaming. But I also am smart enough now to know that if, I, if it gets to that point, that critical point where I'm unhappy, if it gets to that point where something just doesn't feel right in my gut, I'm not leaning into my strengths. It feels too hard. And not like things should be hard, but too hard in that, like, why am I fighting something that I suck at so badly? Um, you know, I'll probably just change it because I've done it so many times. Now I know that I can start again. I can start from the very bottom again. And I'd rather spend my Monday to Fridays. Well, I, I work six days a week. My Sundays to Fridays, um, 8 a.m. To, to 7 p.m. doing something that I think is important. It makes me feel like I'll have a legacy. And uh, if, if, I'm, if that suddenly starts to change, I'll just change. I'll go find something else. Excellent. So for the, for the time being, you're, you're comfortable in your own skin doing what you're doing. Look, every day has its challenges. I actually, I, I can't sit here and say I'm, I'm the most confident human being on, on the planet. I have my, I have my issues like everybody else. Um, I, I have my insecurities. I have my doubts. I have my fears for sure, but I have paired myself and surrounded myself with such amazing people. Like truly my business partner is one of the most positive people I've ever met, which is, is infectious to be around the team who work for me, my executive assistants that are sitting outside the office, setting up the camera, they come in with their smiles. They come in with their good attitudes and everyone on my media squad who I know is trying their best to offer the best service. Even when one of our clients kind of beats us down, we're, we're in it together. It's, it's truly like a family. And, um, so that makes me very, very comfortable. Happy days. Well, Laura, I think you've had quite a life, actually. <laughs> a lot, a lot of living in thirty-seven years, eh, Tim? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I got a long ways to go, hopefully, and uh, hopefully there'll be a lot more, uh, more stories to come. Absolutely. Every day's a new day. As long as you get up in the morning, every day is a new day. So live every day as though it's your last, because one day it will be. I love that. That's good advice. I'll take that. I'll take that home with me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> the Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.